Our text this morning comes from the Gospel according to John. We're in chapter 12 and verses 20 through 21. And the reading we find there is this. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired of him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Powerful statement. You see, it's the week of the final Passover under the old Jewish system. At the end of this week, Jesus is going to be slain as the true Lamb of God. Jesus is in Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. Not just the sins of the world. Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and he's there to die for my sins. He's there to die for your sins. We've left the banquet room in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. He was a Pharisee. There's been a banquet there in Simon's home in Jesus' honor. Lazarus had been there. Martha was no doubt serving, and Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus. And now we're in the middle of a bustling street that leads into the city of Jerusalem. There are throngs of worshipers there, thronging the street, the press of the people. They come to Jerusalem in anticipation of the Passover. And as with the other feasts, the worshipers were there wondering if Jesus was going to attend. And they eagerly watched for his arrival. As you read the accounts upon the arrival of Jesus, they lined his path to the city with palm branches and clothes. He's receiving the reception of a conquering hero. Many times during his ministry, Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem. But this triumphal entry, this coming to the capital city of the Hebrews differed in one significant way. Jesus was not visiting as a worshiper. On this day, Jesus came and claimed it as a king. And yet, unlike a conquering warrior king, Jesus enters the city on a symbol of peace. He's not sitting high in the saddle of a prancing white steed as a conquering war hero might be. He's not riding in a stately chariot pulled by a team of magnificent horses. Jesus is riding into the city on an humble donkey. And among those that have come to worship him, John tells us there were some Greeks, certain Greeks, he said. And these men being Greeks, they come from a very rich past. The Greek civilization, it was a civilization that was rich and deep in history, in the arts, particularly sculpturing and philosophy. The thinkers of the world of that day were Greeks. There was Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and a long, long list of others. And these men had come. And they'd come to Jerusalem with 
hungering hearts and with thirsting souls and they're looking for something deeper, something that's beyond the knowledge of this world. And they came up to Philip, one of the Lord's apostles. They probably approached Philip because he had a Greek name. And they said to Philip, simply, Sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we want to see Jesus. That's something. This world of ours today desperately needs. Our world today needs to see Jesus. Because, folks, Jesus is the center of our whole universe. Jesus is the center of our world. We date all events of world history in terms of the day that Jesus was born. But more important than that, Jesus is the center of our lives. Jesus is the center of everything that matters. And obviously we know that that is a fact. Obviously we know that Jesus is the center. Because as Christians we wear his name. And we wear it proudly. We're assembled in a building that has his name painted on the front. It's there to indicate the church belongs to Christ. So obviously we believe in Christ. We believe in Him as the treasure of our world. We believe in Him as the very center of our lives. And yet, I wonder. You know I do that sometimes. I wonder if perhaps when we really stop and think about it, even though we consider Jesus to be central in our lives, do we sometimes, even in our religious activities, crowd Jesus into the background of our thinking? There are a lot of different things that we think about in as a part of our religious activities. Sometimes we think in terms of Bible classes. Who will teach them? How could we get more people to attend them? What class will meet in what room? What will that particular class study? Or we think in terms of gospel meetings. We just had one. Or revivals or evangelistic efforts. If we're going to have a gospel meeting or revival, who's going to, who are we going to get to do, lead, do the preaching? Who are we going to get to lead the singing? How are we going to advertise it? How are we going to promote it? And then there's that myriad of other details. Getting the literature printed. Getting the literature distributed. Details as far as the dinner is concerned or the 
refreshments after the sting you're concerned. On and on the list goes on of all the little things. We need to make sure we get some of the grass out of the cracks in the sidewalk. We need to be sure we spray Roundup on the parking lot. We need to make sure those spots in the carpet get cleaned up before our guests come. And all these little bitty things. And then we think of our religious activities in terms of bulletins to be printed and an order of worship to be printed and who's going to serve in the worship. And then sometimes we have to think in terms of buildings to be built or buildings to be renovated or buildings to have roofs put on them, buildings to be updated, buildings to be maintained. There's money that has to be raised. There are plans that have to be drawn. There's construction that has to be started. There's all those little details that go with it. And also we think in terms of numbers. More people. How can we get more people to be interested? How can we bring the lost, the strayed, and the stolen back into the fold? What can we do? And you know, here's the sad thing. Oftentimes in the midst of all of our doing church, we forget the why. Maybe we need to ask that question sometime. Bible classes? Why? Bulletins? Why? Buildings? Why? Numbers? Why? Encouraging people to have a deeper commitment? Why? Because of our love for Jesus. Christ is the center of our lives. And nothing must crowd Jesus to the background. I don't want to be church-centered in my preaching. I want to be Christ-centered. Understand the church is important. The church is vital. The church is a must if we're going to make it to heaven when life is over. But we have to remember the church takes its importance from the fact that the church is Jesus' way of saving lost souls. And it's not the church that's central. It's Jesus that's central. More than once over the last 19 years, you've heard me stress the importance of reading the Bible. And we must be a people of the book. Some, in some places we need to return to being the people of the book. And my desire is to exalt the Bible in my preaching but to do it only so that Jesus Christ can be 
supreme. You see, the Bible is paper and ink and leather and silk. And it's nothing more than that. Unless it tells us of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the message that He brought. I first heard the following selection about the Bible from Floyd Wallace, Jr. I heard him use this in a meeting almost 50 years ago. The first Sunday I was ever in Center, Texas, I used this same reading in a Bible class. I want you to notice as I read this, the emphasis that it has on the King of Kings, the Savior. Many years ago, I entered the wonderful temple of God's revelation. I entered the portico of Genesis and walked down through the Old Testament art gallery, where the pictures of Adam and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, and Daniel hung on the wall. I entered the music room. The music room was a song where the spirit swept the keyboard of nature and brought forth the dirge-like wail of the weeping prophet Jeremiah to the grand impassioned strains of Isaiah until it seemed that every reed and harp in God's organ of nature responded to the tuneful touch of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chapel of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher was heard and I passed into the conservatory of Sharon where the lily of the valleys sweet-scented spices filled and perfumed my life. I entered the business room of the Proverbs and passed into the observatory room of the prophets where I saw many telescopes of various sizes, some pointing to far-off events, but all concentrated the bright and morning star that was soon to rise over the moonlit hills of Judea for our salvation. I entered the audience room of the King of Kings and caught a vision from the standpoint of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I entered the Acts of the Apostles where the Holy Spirit was doing His office work in the forming of the church. I then passed into the correspondence room where sat Paul and Peter and James and Jude and John penning their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of revelation and there all towered into glittering peaks and I got a vision of the king seated upon his throne and I cried all hail the power of Jesus name let angels prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. When we read this book, when we read the Old and the New Testament, we see that the central theme is the person and the teachings of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is simply leading up to that event. The New Testament is the unfolding of that event in all of its fullness. And Jesus refers to the Scriptures in John 5 and verse 39 and says, these are they which testify of me. 
while I desire to make certain that this book that we call the Bible is prominent in my preaching I hope and I pray that it's a means to emphasize Jesus who saves our souls sometimes I preach doctrines I name and explain the steps an individual has to take to become a Christian but we must never separate those doctrines from the Christ who gave them Sometimes we preach doctrines concerning the church. We speak of its organization. We speak of its worship. But we must never forget they take their importance from Jesus. Jesus is the center. Let me try to make it a comparison. Think of it in terms of a young couple getting married. A fine young man, a fine young woman. They fall in love. They decide to get married. They pick a date. The wedding is over. The cake's been cut. The punch bowl's empty. And they've established a home. And after a while in that home, children come. The most important element in that home is the love that binds them together. But of a necessity, they have to earn a living. And they spend a lot of hours with their nose to the grindstone because there are bills to be paid. There's a mortgage or there's a rent payment that's due. And there's the electric bill and the gas bill and the water bill. And there are meals to prepare and there's dishes to wash and there's clothes to wash and there's grass to mow and a house to clean. And as the years come and go, there's the very real likelihood they'll forget the central thing that binds them together. And that's the love that caused them to establish that home to start with. And it gets lost through the preoccupation of making a living and making beds and washing dirty diapers. And they need to stop occasionally and lift their eyes from those necessary but secondary things to the main thing. The love that binds them together. In that same way, in that very same way, you and I need to lift our eyes from the good things we're engaged in as the body of Christ. So we can remember the one for whom we do those good things. The theme of putting Jesus Christ first is apparent in that little four-chapter letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Almost every other verse in that entire book mentions Christ. And the entire wonderful personal relationship that Paul had with Christ as that letter begins it is only two verses in that Paul refers to Christ three times the very first two verses 
Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in that same chapter, in verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then in its exaltation of Christ, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul comes to a climax there of his exaltation of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him, and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is sinful. And that passage says it in a wonderful way. But notice the further emphasis of Paul in this little letter. He looks back for a moment to his life under the law of Moses. And in chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul has this to say. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of heresy, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law of blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. And then later in verse 4 of chapter 4 he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. We need to understand. We need to know that the thing that makes Christianity real is Christ. It's not what we say. And it's not what we do. It's Christ. We don't need to explain Him. We don't need to defend Him. All we need to do is present Christ to the world. And that involves not just what we say. It involves how we live. It's Jesus Christ. It's His exalted truth. It's His matchless love and His perfect life that reaches out and takes hold of people. Jesus one time said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Jesus has great power. But it's up to us to show the real Christ to the world around us. 
That's what happened to a woman one day at a well in Samaria. She came to draw water and she met Jesus. And when she met Jesus, she went and told her fellow townspeople, come and see a man that told me all things whatsoever I did. And you know what they did? They came to see Jesus. I happened to a lot of other people that met Jesus. It's the story of Mary Magdalene, a woman with a less than sterling reputation who became a pure and fine disciple of Jesus. It's the story of a little tax collector, a little bow-legged Jewish tax collector named Zacchaeus down in Jericho. He met Jesus from the vantage point of the sycamore tree and took him home for dinner. And his life was forever altered because he met Jesus. That's what Jesus meant when Jesus said he would draw all men unto him. Jesus is the center of our world. But he's more. He's also the center of the universe and everything that's in it. I began this morning with a text where those Greeks said to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. The non-Christian world today is coming to us with a hungering heart. And the world says to us, as those who wear the name of Christ, that they would like to see Jesus. Paul said, be you imitators of me as I also am of Christ. So here's what you and I have to do. We have to make sure that Jesus is the core. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the focus of our lives. We have to make sure that others see Jesus living in us. If you need to make changes so Jesus can be seen in your life, now's the opportunity to do that as we stand and while we sing.